You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. So I just jumped and had the nine string made and I was like, I'll figure it out because your body doesn't know the difference. You know, there's nothing natural about playing the violin in this weird position. And yet it's one of the most classical instrument, pun intended. And, uh, you know, your body is going to adapt to anything that you put it uh, through, basically. So I knew that if I'd spend the time, I could figure out the instrument and play it. It was and I was 22 back then. And that mentality uh, kind of followed me and just like learn the instrument. Your body doesn't know the difference. You know, uh, we're not born to play any instrument, but you can we can learn all of them. So it's just, you know treat it as an instrument and you'll figure it out i was super into the mechanics of the chapman stick back then so i kind of wanted to blend these world chapman stick and electric bass and uh yeah that's what it, that's how it came about hey what's up vox and hops heads i'm matt the vocalist of crypt and the host of the vox and hops metal podcast brought to you by sound talent media and evergreen podcasts where i sit down with fellow metal musicians talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers i've all been having a killer week i most certainly have been are you in a band? Would you like to have your band's music showcased on a Vox and Hops episode? I would love to do that for you. I have a whole new segment called Artist Spotlight where I shine some light on killer bands. Hit me up, send me an email, matt at voxandhops.com, and I will get you sorted on the Artist Spotlight. If you want to have your band's music played on an upcoming episode, send me an email, matt at voxandhops.com. Now, before we jump into today's episode, I'd just like to ask you to follow the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast on the podcast platform of your choice. But more than that, I would love for you to tell a friend about the podcast. If there's someone in your life that really likes experimental music, well, you should definitely let them know that the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast exists. You could tell them that there are over 400 episodes where I sit down with some of the world's best metal musicians who talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you would encourage one of your experimental music-loving friends to become a brand new Vox and Hops head, that would be something that I would truly appreciate. Now, today in the podcast, I'm very stoked to be with Frederic Filiatro, also known as Chaos from Von Dogma I. Get ready, everyone. This is Vox and Hops episode number 414. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. What's up, everyone? Today I'm with Frederic Filiatro, also known as Chaos from Von Dogma I. Uh, Fred, I've known you forever. Um, we did horrible, horrible things on 70,000 tons of metal. The original one, the real boat that actually weighs 70,000 tons of metal, uh, which we won't talk about tonight because we're here to talk about something else. Um, I've been meaning to have you on the podcast for many years. I was very stoked when John Asher uh, hit me up to have you on because uh, you're dropping a full-length album for Von Dogma I tomorrow, which is super cool. I love talking to artists when it's this close. We're talking about the cult of glitch. Um, Fred, how you doing? I am great, man. And thanks for having me. It's been a while since I uh, kind of wanted to do this. So uh, it's really awesome for you to even consider having me. And yes, I'm excited. The nine string bass master, you know, four wasn't <laughs> yeah. enough, five wasn't enough, six wasn't enough. You had to go to nine. We're going to hit that later, but this is Vox and Hops. And we're recording this at a Thirsty Thursday live interview. I do these uh, the first Thursday of the month. I hang out with my metal friends, do a Vox and Hops episode with the Thirsty Thursday gang in a Attendance. Um, it's always stoked to do this. Uh, let's just dig straight into it. This is Vox and Hops, where I hang out with my metal friends. We talk about life and metal while sharing a craft beer. Now, over 
over the past few years, uh, you messaged me and you mentioned that you are now sober. So, so what are you going to be drinking tonight? We'll dig into your newfound sobriety in the future of the episode, but let's just dig into what you're drinking right now. Yeah, um, I love this brand, Vagabond, and they just released a couple of uh, 0.5 or less than 0.5, basically alcohol-free, and this one is the white. It's called Salut au Soleil, and I've had it a couple of times before, uh, well, this week, actually, and I love it. Very cool. Cheers to you for that. Um, Vagabond is a part of a Le Collectif, I believe it's called. It's a huge regroupment of many microbreweries that all brew together in Boucherville, I want to say. Um, there's Vagabond. There's uh, Le Menfri. Loop is also made there. Uh, Loop makes beer. They make kombucha. It's a really massive, massive brewery. And very funny story is that the beer that I'm going to drink right now with you today was Hand on the old Le Collectif's canning machine. So I have a special beer to here today. Something very, very uh, close to my heart. Uh, something that I love very much that I'm happy that uh, Drew keeps doing. I'm talking about Kanawaki Brewing and Cryptopsy's Crisp Topsy. Uh, he does it, you know, two, three times a year at this point. It's a modern pilsner dry hop pilsner with a mosaic hops i love it to death 4.8 percent new world pilsner is how he calls it with that brand new reimagined whisper supremacy uh, bat from philip ivanovic just so damn cool same canning machine it's a collective it's a it's a small world i'm gonna crack this and uh take me to uh, your journey of now being sober and and what 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 went on there uh well uh, i guess the pandemic happened and I got some little health problem in there. So it was the perfect uh, kind of uh, excuse, if you will, or opportunity to quit drinking. Cause I, I've been a heavy drinker for like most of the 20 last year. And, uh, I was taking breaks, you know, for two weeks there, one month there, two months there. And I figured, um, that's, you know, me having a health problem was like the perfect, you know, the perfect cue for stopping for real or at least for an extended period and it's been almost three years and i still haven't picked it up but i still drink beer you know with that um delicious salut au soleil so i still drink beer but i'm discovering all of the zero percent and the alcohol free beer so uh you know it's still good it, it does 70 percent of the job <laughs> It's it's a cleaner it's a cleaner job that's for sure, and, yeah, and our yeah. life tends to be cleaner when we when we lean towards the the non alcoholic choices or the zero point five choices. Yeah, well, the, the the mornings are easier. That being said, I look at your beer and I'm like, yeah, I wish I could have that right now. So <laughs> the, it's still there, you know. Kanawaki Brewing does do some really cool um, non alcoholic stuff, but we could hypothetically talk about dragging this into his non alcoholic line. We'd have to find a clever pun. For, right, right for pilsner supremacy with with no alcohol that's a Do christian donaldson um, yeah you area. got you got me you got me started I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna find one before the end of this episode I, that would be very cool take me to your first beer uh do you remember the very first beer you had you you mentioned that 20 years of your life was spent enjoying beer so so what was your very first beer do you remember the first beer you ever had fred that i ever had uh, that was probably one of the most and i mean nothing fancy but i mean were both about 40 years old so mm -hmm. i'm guessing that, you know a craft beer wasn't really a thing or not remotely as popular back in the late 90s is when i started drinking so it was really all about molson and labat so 
back then there was one really popular that was Molson High Dry, and we would drink ton of that. I don't know if the, if it's the first one I had, but uh, probably Molson Dry or Molson Export or Molson High Dry, which was our favorite because it was stronger. So yeah, it was it was all about effectiveness and cost effectiveness. cost effectiveness was very important. In the late 90s, early 2000s, since we're the same age, basically, it was like, how much money do I have? How much can I get this going as far as it can go? So so Molson and the, the high ABVs, those horrible 40 ounces, they're the, the 10%, and for some reason... They they made these just just brutal brutally and they tasted like garbage and but we didn't know we didn't have any frame of reference and and uh, yeah that's the money we had and also you're discovering your own body you don't know what you can take what you that's can't true. take so you just drink ten of those and like create memories for life so <laughs> which I'm happy that there was no social media at that point too yeah yeah to so document we, we had to the wonderful memories that we we. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't flip your, through your phone the next day to figure out. You had to empty your pocket, call friends, or, you know, gather clues like what happened. So that was that was the real detective stuff. <laughs> I love that. I'd love to hear about the soundtrack of your youth when you're growing up in your parents or guardians house. What music was playing when you were not in control of the radio? What music did your parents or guardians listen to? Uh, I've. I don't know. I guess the me being the person that I am musically really was uh, an answer to that. Basically. It was just uh, the popular stuff and radio stuff. You know, my mother had all the popular um, Quebec ar artists and, uh, you know, the Céline Dion and uh, Whitney Houston, all the big, well, Whitney Houston's not from Quebec, but, you know, all the mainstream pop. And But I remember my first record that I actually recognized was in the 80s. Yeah, I'm that old. And it was uh, Michael Jackson's Bad. And I remember these two or three or four early song me and my brother would run in circle in the basement because we were stimulated by that pop funk and that's the first music that i actually recognized but it was the 80s and michael jackson was everywhere so i guess that's normal but uh then i discovered rock and roll around 96 and everything changed <laughs> uh take me to your first shows remember the first show that you went to go see yeah the first concert that i went to see uh, was on what's the big venue that closed on Saint Denis? Uh, the medley. Yes, the medley. That's that's the one. And it was lag wagon. I think it was wow. back in '97. And it was uh, yeah, because I was 15 years old, and it was like a huge mosh pit, and you know, punk rock mosh pit are pretty big, and it was like a sold out medley. So it was brutal. But that was my first concert. Yes. At what point did you start getting into playing music, and was it always the bass first? Um, well, it started with fiddling around with like an acoustic guitar that my friend had in the basement. And we all started figuring out like the power chord that we'd hear all over the place and just, you know, playing guitar. But one of my friends bought an electric guitar in 97, 98, all of around the same time. And uh, we just stopped smoking weed. So we needed to have a new hobby, right? So uh, I bought a bass. Or I, I got a bass as a gift from my parents on my birthday to answer and to play with my friend that newly had an electric guitar. So that really started that started the whole thing. I became obsessed with the instrument, you know, electric bass. And but it was the '90s musical landscape at the time, so it was you know punk rock and alternative music and that kind of stuff. And then new metal hit, and the, you know the rest is history. But yeah. So no more weed, and then you guys 
became addicted to music and playing music. That's interesting. Typically, it would be like I start playing music and then I get into the bad influence of, of what comes with playing music. That's interesting. Oh, that that, that still came later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, the bonding with your friend of both of you quitting weed led you to become a musician. Kind of, yeah. You know, when you discover weed, then you discover about a year later the paranoid phase or something like that. Or one of us or two of us in the group, like... We got caught by our, our parents and it was like that big family drama. So we're like, we got to cut back, man. Like at 15 or 16 years old, like looking back, we were kids. But uh, then, yeah, I, it kind of I'm not saying that it was the reason, but the hobby of playing bass like started about the same time that we stopped smoking weed when I was like 16 years old. So. Um, so, yeah, that's what happened. And I guess I focused a lot of energy on that because, yeah, I became obsessed with the instrument and I've been playing it ever since. You, you, you definitely mastered the four strings very quickly, I imagine, <laughs> which led to all the other strings. I'm not there yet. Um, take me to your first time on stage. Do you remember your first show? Yeah, I remember my first show. There was no stage, so I don't remember my first <laughs> stage. But uh, it was in um, in the inside court of a uh, secondaire of a high school, basically. And we, we would play for the kids on their uh, lunch break, basically. But, like, we had no, uh, you know, they didn't check what we were doing. So we were basically playing cover with my first cover band, Dharma Bombs. That was back in 98, because I started playing in a band, like, immediately after playing bass. They were like, they need a bass player. I've been playing for three or four months back then. That was that was enough, yeah. That, yeah, and that was enough to play, you know, the 90s landscape of uh, musicality, basically. So we'd play, like... Uh, you know, uh, Green Day and Marilyn Manson and Radiohead and uh, Bush and, you know, all the 90s alternative, basically. That was my first show. Take me to Unexpect Hit Off. It was so popular. People, as soon as I announced that you're going to be here tonight, a, a big thread was just going on of people that were so excited because of the Unexpect uh, notoriety, the, the fact that you were a part of Unexpect. It really took off big. You were a part of that Quebec landscape of the 2000s that was happening with Beneath the Massacre, Despised Icon, Unexpect. It's just uh, the agonist. Another example of the wide tapestry of music that comes from Montreal. That was a fascinating period in music, you know, Montreal in the 2000 and weird metal, you know, specifically, I think uh, we were fortunate enough to, you know, live in that specific era of musical evolution, I feel. It's, I don't know where it stems from. I get asked this question all the time and I wasn't planning on asking it. But now as I was <laughs> naming all this stuff, I want to ask the question, well, where do you think it came from? I get asked this question all the time and I have my answer for it. What, why, th what the, you know, cryptopsy was already successful before this boom of what happened in the 2000s of, of the death core, uh, the beyond creation, which is also super progressive. You guys being probably the closest thing to an extreme metal Mr. Bungle hypothetically before Igor lots of ties going on there uh, to, where, where, where did it come from why Montreal why Quebec in your opinion I I don't know I guess I guess everybody's talking about how uh, Quebec specifically is kind of a weird blend of American culture European culture and Scandinavian culture because there's that vibe in Montreal and in that or at least at that time, like um, it really is a blend or it's it's kind of in the middle of everything, but it's a little European, it's a little American and all of that. And musically, I think it was answering to that. And 
maybe because it's cold in Canada or I don't know, or everything's complicated with life, we try to push the music further or try to impress with, you know, more musicality or I, I don't really know where it came from, but for sure the 2000 were a fascinating uh, period because the style, the, the metal style was still being developed. You know, there was, there was still subgenre being born left and right. You know, like you mentioned, there was no really a deathcore before Despised Icon. And, and I, I stand by that. Fuck all the other people that say that someone else started. It started with Despised absolutely, Icon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or at least they coined the term or they coined the, the term. But um, and there was not really tech dead before Cryptopsy. You know, that's a big part of it. it pushed death metal forward. And I and Dissonance is a band that one of the very first band that pushed like dissonant, like madcore. And uh, for unexpect, I mean, we helped coin the term avant-garde metal, whatever that meant. But at least there was still a subgenre of music being born. And that's why it's fascinating. You know, metal was still being explored and invented, literally. You know, today you have a good deathcore band, you get a good symphonic metal band. But there was no there's no more new subgenre popping out. And, you know, um, so, yeah, that that was a really fascinating fascinating era of music so i don't know why it happened but you know i'm fortunate to have been part of it basically absolutely you guys paved paved across you guys toured relentlessly yeah put it that, all out that, there that's for sure i'm gonna ask the nine string question now why was nine why nine string it feels like excessive to me but i don't play the bass right a lot of people start with four and then end up with a five string because they want that low lower low note um where did it come from the 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 necessity to to have more strings and a and a very sore back i imagine <laughs> yes a very sore back when you try to blend the dillinger's cape plan theatrics with the nine <laughs> yes. string bass you know which i've done for like many years uh, so um but yeah yeah i started with four string like everybody but I can't I can't believe how fast things happened back then but I started playing bass in 98 and within about a year and a half I had discovered Victor Wooten I had discovered uh, uh Jean Baudin and that's the player that got me into the nine string bass. Uh Jean Baudin was the bass player for a band called Nuclear Rabbit which was a Californian weird kind of Mr. Bungle uh Primus-ish hardcore weird prog band and i was super into that uh when i was yeah 17 a year into playing i was like super into it and he was the first one who used a nine string um well one of the very first one if not the first one to use a nine string bass in a rock setup because back then you know just like craft beer uh luthier didn't start being independent and like building a bunch of weird instrument which is standard now but back then it was not at all like corn had seven strings and that was edgy but uh he went completely to the extreme and got a nine string bass which is so preposterous you know so out there and that left a big impact on the very impressionable 17 year old me who was just starting to play bass like suddenly i discovered like the mechanics of victor Wood and like oh you can do what with the bass <laughs> and then gene bowden with his nine string bass so i kind of blended this world and i started my own quest of too many strings i got uh five string which was the conklin the same brand and jean bowden was using and then I got the seven string because they, they made a seven string, the seven string uh, groove tools from Conklin because I was getting pretty good at 
two two hand tapping and you know playing the instrument in a piano like fashion and um i started adding more strings and when i was 22 back in 2004 i was like the hell with it i think i can handle even more so i'll i ordered my first custom nine string that i got uh in 2005 and you know that became my signature instrument since then it's amazing. It's amazing. And the, the, the patience that you guys probably had to have waiting for these instruments, because you order them, they build them, it takes time, they ship them. It must have been brutal to, to, to wait so long to receive this tool that you're, you're wanting to explore. And then you get it, and then you have to sort of almost relearn the instrument or re-explore the instrument. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But I started playing it mentally before I got my hands physically on it, because I knew that I would have to adapt to another lower string, like the F-sharp string, not to get too technical, but we're all metalheads here. And so I was kind of adapting and trying to see my pickup with my thumb rest as the yes. F-sharp string so that I wouldn't have to uh, mentally... Anyway, I had I had my technique down, but I ordered it in 2004 and I got it in 2005. So I was still playing the seven string um, at that point. And uh, with Unexpected, we recorded the album in a flesh aquarium with the seven string but like right after that i got the nine string so i did the whole tour cycle with the nine string after that what are the benefits of having more strings for people that don't know this what what is the benefit of having five extra strings on a bass well it's a bit much uh <laughs> you don't have to go to nine necessarily but uh you know uh, even back then i mean when you were playing a six string it was like edgy it was like for edgy metal heads and edgy like jazz player and now everybody's playing a six string bass so you know it it, it really caught up but the extreme of nine was just I, I could see the use for a higher string on the seven string, um, but I couldn't necessarily see the use for a low F sharp. I didn't need to go that low, basically. But I was like, I don't want to get an eight string because it's going to sound like uh, a four string double string, yeah. like Pearl, Pearl Jam style. And I didn't want that confusion. I was like, I'm not going to get an eight string and then a month later order a nine string because you know i can i think i can add another one so i just jumped and had the nine string made and i'll i was like i'll figure it out because your body doesn't know the difference you know there's nothing natural about playing the violin in this weird position and yet it's one of the most classical instrument pun intended and uh you know your body's gonna adapt to anything that you put it uh through basically so i knew that if i'd spend the time i could figure out the instrument and play it it was and i was 22 back then and that mentality uh kind of followed me and just like learn the instrument your body doesn't know the difference you know uh we're not born to play any instrument but you can we can learn all of them so it's just you know treat it as an instrument and you'll figure it out i was super into the mechanics of the chapman stick back then so i kind of wanted to blend these world chapman stick and electric bass and uh, yeah that's what it, that's how it came about were you always musically inclined let's say not like uh, like a prodigy let's say as a child or but is it something that came easy for you learning new instruments piano let's say or stuff I no, I don't think I was musically inclined until I started playing guitar. That's really when I, you know, we had these like keyboard lessons in like um, high school, but I never really did that much with that. I always had the keyboard, you know, when I was a kid, but uh, I never worked on chops or really anything. I was just fooling around with it. But for, for some reason, I guess this reason I have giant hands, 
bass really felt like right at home and I could like manipulate it I guess I guess in the proper way also I got uh, some lessons just for like a couple months but the first guy when I got the bass I got bass lessons you know to go with it at the some you know music store but he really taught me to start in the proper way the way of holding it scales learning some songs so he really put me on the right path and from there I just you know learned everything by myself basically amazing I love it um the end of unexpected it was a sad moment. How long did it take you to, to mourn it? And it's probably never ending. You guys built something up very unique, something super interesting. There's no other band like Unexpect out there. Igor is trying, but different. Because um, basically, you're the, and I could be wrong, you, you seem to be the only still active member. So, so it must have been a tough moment to to be mourning something that you've built so far up and then just have it be gone yeah for sure for years it was uh rough but it was kind of not denial but we weren't sure that the band was done at first because it was like a hiatus at first uh so we never had that emotional meeting where we hug each other and we're like that's the end you know uh, you know, playing back in black and white and slow motion, everything that you've ever lived with that band in your head, you know, we never had that moment, you know, I couldn't have the heart to, to go through that anyway. So, um, we took a break, we had a meeting to take a break for a year and then see what happens. And, um, after a year and a half, we kind of agreed that I guess it was the end for now, but um, yeah, it was the end anyway, but after that, for sure, it was rough for a couple of years. I mean, it doesn't take forever to get over, but it was rough for a couple of years because it's such a big part of who you are and your identity and your agenda, because, you know, you're busy with shows and practice and all the stuff that goes in with being in a band, um, that it's really a part of you that goes away. But I tried, you know, keeping my, uh, feet on stage with like, uh, different bands and session and session uh, contracts and stuff like that but uh, there was never after that the the touring cycles and stuff like that but i'm really glad that some people still come up to me and talk about the music that we put out 10 15 years ago even more so uh, it seems to have left an imprint i even have a book called mean deviation four decades of evolution of music and we're mentioned as part of the evolution of you know progressive music so Absolutely. it's really an honor to be recognized i mean still today after all these years so yeah 2017 you dropped first solo ep communion with von dogma i finally yes, you had your own voice your own take me to that moment of mourning unexpected doing session work playing in a pantera cover band where i came out and played a, a killer 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 track with you guys was super fun um taken to finally taking the leap and doing something solo on your own building something after such a big band yeah well um i don't know if unexpected was big big but you know it left an imprint but uh it was uh after all of these years it's something that i could not really stop doing you know it's i, I always had like demos on my computer and like tracking my home studio and uh, even some of that material was initially maybe going to be unexpected material. So there's some crazier stuff on the record that I was considering putting into uh, unexpected for further record. So that tells you how old some of that material is. But um, 
Um, yeah, I put out an EP. It was really initially just a demo that I had back in 2016, 2017 that I recorded with my friend Blaze, who was also in Unexpect. And uh, it sounded pretty good, so I released it as an EP. And for all of the other songs, you know, I wrote it with Kevin Alexander on drums back in 2018, and we hit the studio. Um, but uh, it's basically me with countless hours of you know spending countless hours with my electric guitar and my instruments and my bass and just writing stuff and like orchestrating and uh countless hours that did not go to waste because finally it's a record because there's it's so easy to have like unfinished demos and unfinished song that last five ten percent of inspiration is always the hardest thing so i i was glad to finally justify all this hard work and all, all these countless hours spent orchestrating music and you know finally make it something tangible <laughs> the cult of glitch came out may 5th um it's interesting i listened to it all today uh, your identity is painted across it um, it's, it's a weird record it's a weird record but it's enjoyable and it feels cohesive which is important it feels like one project it feels like you you mentioned that last five percent and it's something that i love to ask people that do basically solo projects uh how do you know when it's good enough how do you know when it's finished a track let's say because in a band setting it's like a group decision and i read it in one of your quotes that you used to have don't have to fight for your ideas as you used to in a, in a band project so, so how do you know when a track is finished that it's good enough well you Believe it or not, the last, last, last master was printed, uh, I think, last week. So wow. it's never really finished, you know. <laughs> I was, uh, I actually uploaded everything and I was like, nah. And then I went back to the guy in studio and I was like, okay, here's some updates that we could do. And he redid like a super last minute the master. What you hear right now is the final result. But um, so basically, it's never finished until the day it's released. But, uh, Man, countless hours of going back to the studio, redoing stuff, especially for the vocoder, which is really um, uncharted territory. And it's not as easy to mix as a regular voice because there's a bunch of overdubs with a bunch of frequency response. And for this to sit somewhere in the mix is kind of challenging. And also uh, the self-doubt of like, is this worth anything? Am I just crazy? Am I going to get laughed at? Which I don't really care because I'm used to being the weirdo in any lineup. <laughs> the the vocals are super interesting. The it's uh, I, I have to say that when I saw the first single drop, I watched the video and I was like, oh, this is cool. I, it was very interesting to see that much of your personality painted across the project and then throughout the whole album so take me to to a vocoder explain it exactly what's going on there how that works you write out lyrics and then you you speak them in and then you you program and tell which notes each thing goes and then there's like harmonies that get built upon that am i i'm just guessing at this point yeah yeah, yeah that's pretty much it but which makes it even more of a headache because if you record vocals i mean you sing and that's the track basically so i need to record a vocal part and then do the harmony well it's all done about at the same time but um, there's a midi file that tunes the vocals to a certain harmony so the same vocal take can trigger different lines that have different uh imprint of different tones on it different synthesizers so just one vocal track can trigger like for instance five different tracks and two of them being bass with that line and three of them being on top and one harmonized and they all have different um tone signature and then you mix that all 
down to make something um, cohesive, basically. But the possibilities are really endless. And, you know, uh, back in 2005, I heard a track by Imogen Heap. She was yes. one of the first pop yeah. singer to yeah. do that, like the, yeah. the track Hide and Seek. Exactly. You know, she kind of put the synthesizer and it was super bare down to just her vocals and the synthesizer. And that track was amazing. It is. And I remember driving the van on tour with Unexpect. And I had a moment where everybody was was sleeping in the van. And I had a moment as the sun was coming up and uh, we were super tired. And that song came on the radio. And I was like, yeah, it really sat with me as I was driving north to Edmonton or something. I love that. But I, I was always fascinated with vocoders after that with the modern uh, electronic and pop production like james blake and bon iver and a bunch of electro pop artists that he, that are using that but it's never really seen into the elitist rock and roll um metal or rock mentality because it needs to be and everything needs to be analog but i've listened to more electronic music than rock music basically in the last decade and i wanted to incorporate that into my sound uh, basically do what i always did and blend the unblendable so basically <laughs> taking that synthetic approach of production it's really synth heavy the record and the vocoder and put that into a modern metal outfit with the low tuning the nine string bass and stuff like that and just see what happens because it's the kind of thing that i'd like to have in my record collection so basically it's just making the albums that you don't have in your record collection and i was able to do that so it's cool that's very cool and you have done a very you've nailed that just mixing the synthetic the 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 synth music with the heavy it, it's it blends seamlessly but it's an extremely complex thing to make happen so congrats to you yeah for thank you so much accomplished that because it's a pain i can imagine the the tiresome moments trying to make <laughs> things that you love get along <laughs> yeah, with no frame of reference, because it's not something that exists or that I have a, a ton of example to take from. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's kind of being the lost astronaut in space, not knowing what's going to happen. I like that very much. The, the two plus two equals five mm -hmm. cover was a nice treat, too. Um you mentioned Radiohead earlier and playing covers of Radiohead. Here you are taking it to a next level, providing a very interesting cover, um, mixing and blending the synth and the heavy. It, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's what I always say is that I like the bands that do covers, but that really revamp them with their own style. And, you know, again, blending the unblendable, you know, making a weird metal cover of a Radiohead song is kind of different you know it wouldn't have made sense for me to cover slayer for instance like no <laughs> no hate on slayer but to me it was more interesting to take something from another music style and incorporate it into another sound basically and really revamp it so it fits so well I'm, 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 I'm such a huge radiohead fan you know harmonically and their structure and the way they make music is so fascinating so it made sense in my eyes absolutely i, I really enjoyed it very very much Hey, what's up, Fox and Hops heads? I just want to take a little moment about Cryptopsy's upcoming tours. That's right, I'm talking about the Scream of Perseverance tour and our headliner dates that coincide with that tour called As Summer Burns. The Scream of Perseverance tour is kicking off at the end of May and runs all the way until the end of June. We are supporting the mighty death to all. We are going all over the United States and we are hitting some of Canada. So excited to be honoring the legendary music of death 
alongside amazing musicians that performed on these albums. Even more stoked to be doing some headliner dates in some cities that I've actually never played in. If you are planning to come to any of these shows, you should definitely grab your tickets by going to voxandhops.com slash summer, and you will be able to grab all of your tickets there. That's voxandhops.com slash summer. Do it, people. Come hang out with me. Enjoy life, metal, and craft beer in your hometown. Come to a show. We're going to have a great time. Now, enough about all of that. Let's get back to the episode. I like to talk a lot about mental health for the past year on the podcast. Uh, you mentioned that for the lyrics on the record, uh, you, you've been feeling a lot of dark feelings your whole life, especially recently. Uh, take me to how you cope with these dark feelings, putting them into the music. Uh, talk to me about the darkness and, and how you confront it. Yeah, well, I've done a little tour of uh, interviews and stuff like that to promote this record. And I keep talking about that little lyric book that I have everywhere with, with me. So there's a lot of thought and you know just writing the lyrics that went into that and then when you write a song you just open it and try to put these blocks together yeah basically just keep you know when there was something dark because i have some kind of some degree of history of depression and anxiety you know um and i think it's a lot of people can relate to that just that feeling of emptiness inside or just a unexplainable physical bluesiness that you can't really exactly pinpoint and uh yeah i was plagued with that all my life but um that helped for uh, a good while but now it's uh, it's empty it's empty beer but um you know writing lyrics and mostly keep making music was um not that i'm hiding behind the bass and writing music but it's something to focus your attention on so i kept basically working on that like a madman and it i guess in some way it kept me sane but uh yeah there was some health problems and you know i guess a lot of people can relate to that feeling of darkness inside i just tried to make something out of it when when you put these dark feelings into music and then you reflect upon the song let's say now now the album's coming out tomorrow you can't change anything let's say at this point and i don't want to give you any ideas right now <laughs> <laughs> when you when you re-experience those dark feelings in the song how does that feel does it feel cathartic or is it something that brings you back to that emptiness well it, it used to but uh, at this point in time i've listened to the, the album way too much to you know i just want it out there and not listen to it for like a year and maybe come back to it but when it started to sound good in studio i i, I really felt something but Strangely enough, there's one track that's uh, not a full band track. That's basically just uh, an, a dark ambience that is the track number six called Hive Mind. And that's a good representation of just a weird ass dark horror sci-fi uh, ambience that I wanted to put on the album just as a breather. But it's like the most terrifying breather. And, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of ambient music and like really dark, distorted stuff like uh, Ben Frost or um, uh, Empty Set or Tim Hackard, just really, really dark stuff that's just ambient music, weird ambient music. You know, if if metal can be sexy and lush, like Deftones, for instance, well, then ambient music can be violent and incredibly terrifying. And I find that in uh, Ben Frost and Empty Set and, you know, Tim Hackard. 
So I kind of wanted to do a little bit of that on the record as a form of uh, an interlude or a breather. And I think that that's a good representation of something that's in my head that I want to re represent um, on the album. It's just like just a feeling, just a, uh, a landscape, a, a sound landscape, basically. But it's dark as fuck. So, yeah. I love Tim Hacker, by the way. Really, really like Tim Hacker very much. Uh, get into Ben Frost. Ben Frost has a record called uh, "By the Throat" by Ben Frost, and it's not only one of the best ambient record, but it's one of my favorite album of any genre, and that's not that's that's really saying something. It's the weirdest thing. It's ambient music, but it's performed, and it's not necessarily electronic. It's super analog, and it's terrifying. It's awesome music. <laughs> Sounds like fun, but <laughs> sounds like fun. Uh, I love beer collabs. I'm drinking one of mine right now. Um, if you could make a non-alcoholic beer, uh, what would you call it? What style would you make it? And uh, yeah, maybe we can find a brewery here in Quebec to do it. Well, maybe I'm craving a dark beer uh, these days to follow up on the darkness of the soul. Um, but, you know, a good porter or a good stout that not, you know, it's been done, but a good porter or a good stout that would be 0% or 0.5, whatever. I haven't tried that many. And I know Guinness just released one, but I can't find it anywhere. But that's the biggest name. But any craft beer that, you know, make a 0% stout or porter, I'd be interested. Very cool. Le Bacchale used to do one. I'm not sure they still do it. Um, I can't think of any more as I look to be uh, my beer expert, Steph. He's not sure either. <laughs> so let's turn it over to the Thirsty Thursday gang. If anyone has any questions for Fred, uh, raise your digital hand and uh, I'll call upon you and uh, you can shoot your question to Fred. As always, hand up first is Phil Devites from the Whispers from the Void podcast. Phil, go for it. What's your question for Fred? My question, um, you talked about the Von Dogma Eye album. I'm like, my question is more like, what do you think about that album? What what does it mean to you, that album? What, like, how can you describe it, this album? Well, the, the very name Von Dogma I was, to me, it means the rebirth or the second incarnation of any entity. So in a very personal manner, um, Von Dogma I to me means uh, literally uh, my second uh, musical identity or the a way of being f freed of you know having to fight for any idea and stuff like that so it's really a kind of a rebirth and it it means a lot i mean it's literally the last decade of music spent in my home studio being put out for the public basically so it really means the world in a way that i'm able to finish this and put it out there but at the same time, I'm aware of the musical landscape that we are in now and the musical, the music industry and all of that and how an album doesn't mean as much as it used to. But I, I really don't care. I'm just really proud of releasing that all these years after. And I know that some people are going to be confused because it's not unexpected or it's different. But uh, yeah, it's really a personal achievement. So I love how it sounds. It's never perfect to our ears because we're insane, right? So it's never like... The, the goal of the whole craft is to take it as close as you can to your initial vision. And I think I, it's, a, you know, I think I did that, but it's never perfect. But I already want to make 
you know, a second full-length album. But now that I talk about it, it's going to be out in 11 years, right? So, um, <laughs> 11 yeah, years, so I'm, 11 strings. <laughs> exactly. Let's put well, more strings on Well, you do like Jean Bourdain and you just take 11 strings now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he plays an 11 string now. I, I was like, nine is reasonable. Nine is like the sweet spot. It was no, no, so, no. It was, you do an album, you you put a feature with Jean Bourdain, Felix Martin that does like the guitar yeah. with like two. Yeah, yeah, I know him. <laughs> like, like it, it's perfect. Like you do fucking like everyone that plays like extended range guitar and bass, right. and you do an album with that. I thought about that. Like you know, it's not impossible that you know you see something like that. But I, I, for my future uh, experimentation, I went completely the other way, and I had a one string bass made that I that's sitting right next to me right now. It looks like this. So it's a bass with a slider that holds the note in place. Wow. And you you can click and it holds that note. And then you can unclick it and then you can slide it to wherever you want. And that's plugged in the pedal board right now. I don't know if you can see that. But so it's basically I'm treating a one string bass that's tuned to E an octave lower than a bass. Um, and there's a pickup that's a sustainiac, so the note plays itself in a feedback, and that goes into the pedal board. So I basically, the bass is a, like a synthesizer trigger, so you can play it hands-free because you have the slider and you have the sustainiac looping the note, and then you can your hands are free to tweak the knobs and play, play it like a synthesizer. So I'm not going to go to 11 string, but I'll experiment with that crazy ass one string bass probably on the next record who knows i need to try that i need <laughs> it, it's it's a lot of fun and you you don't really need hands so instead of doing this and playing seven notes at the same time you play that one note and you kind of twist it around and play with the pitch and there's some there's little clips of that on my instagram if you want to see it. very nice we got to team you up with rob scallion do some sort of Rob like, Scallion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Find some way to team you guys team you guys up to do something interesting. Why not? Think, I'm down. I think it'd be super. Right. He, could, he could bring a shovel. But <laughs> <laughs> why not? Amazing. It's 2023. You can do anything. We can do whatever the hell we want. It's uh, just sound. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much phil uh as always you rule uh, phil does a bunch of stuff for the podcast he designs a bunch of uh, logos and images anything you basically see on my social media phil has basically designed it so massive cheers to you phil uh we got pete from half hail half uh pete what's your question for fred hey fred big fan um going way back I've, i have a quick little story and then a question there you go so one of my favorite show memories was Unexpect played in New York at BB Kings. Um, I think it was shortly after In a Flesh Aquarium came out. You were standing right in front of me and you were doing the rock star thing, holding your bass out over the crowd. The Steve and Harris style. Exactly. But I guess you lost your balance and you fell on me and my friend and <laughs> picked you up, didn't miss a beat. And you hop back on stage. It's just one of my favorite memories uh, yeah, from any I mean, show. I, I don't recall that specifically, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, coming from that at the drive in Dillinger's Cape Land, where sometimes your instrument is not in your hand anymore and it's fucking chaos and you go, yeah. So that's where I come from live. But go ahead with the question. Yeah. So one thing that always uh, stuck out to me about Unexpected and now Von Dogma, I also a big fan, by the way. Um, is the aesthetic 
just like the attention to detail visually, sonically. And I was just wondering if that had like, if there was like a, an inspiration for where that look and that aesthetic came from. Um, for Van Dagmai specifically, you know, in the last decade, I kind of became a big, um, visual art fan, just, you know, not knowing anything about it, but just, you know, with everything that we see online and going to a few museums and just seeing art, like we mentioned, like the, you know, Nimus Bosch behind me. And I just kind of wanted to incorporate that to, let's say the album artwork or in the video and stuff like that. But, uh, musically, I very much come from that mentality that it need. It can't be bare. It needs to be, you know, over-orchestrated with a bunch of, uh, you know, for, for Van Dagmai synthesizer, but back in Unexpect, you know, everything that could have been tried has been tried and ended up on the record. It was, it was so dense. So I guess, yes, the maximalist mentality is very much what is very much all over these records. But I don't know that there's one inspiration or one way of thinking. It's just... I don't really know, man. It's it's getting bored of just like guitar, guitar, bass, and drums, uh, unless you're Cryptopsy, because that's the <laughs> dopest fucking band in the world. But I, uh, you know, we were always about you know more instrumentation with violin, keyboard, and f- female vocals and like electronic stuff. So I wanted to keep that way of thinking in a way, and just like putting everything that could be in like new sounds that don't even exist in the music and uh yeah but i don't know that there's one inspiration specifically it's just the mentality of doing sonically something more than most rock bands basically amazing thank you peter hail half uh logan you're up next uh, what's your question for fred right on it's you guys uh it's yeah it's kind of had a fucking instrument nerd out kind of question if you're right with that uh, so I was kind of wondering what you're tuning your nine string to, uh, as well as like your gauge of strings and your fretboard length. Uh, also like how you get comfortable with that, like length of your neck and stuff. Cause I jumped personally from a four string to a six string all within a year. And it's very, it's very difficult to jump from that, which may be like a three inch neck to like a six and a half. And so I was wondering like how you jump, like in, how comfortably you jump from this stuff and do that? Well, from four to six is a big jump. Like you're, go- it's gonna feel like another kind of instrument, literally. The way I did it was really, I played four string and then five and then seven and then nine. So it was really incremental. But from four to nine, it's it, there's really a world there. But anatomically, I'm fortunate to have like big basketball player hands. But I was never good at sports. I was like, I'm gonna put too much, too many strings <laughs> on my bass instead. <laughs> But um, for the bass, it's tuned, well, you have the four string, which is tuned E, A, D, G. So I have a lower B, like on a five string, and a lower F sharp, basically. And there's three higher string as well. So in total, it's F sharp, B, E, A, D, G, and then a C. That would be the top string of a six string. But then I also have an F and a B flat. I'm looking at the bass as I'm... you know, saying that. So it's F sharp to B flat, all fourths. And the string spacing is 16 millimeters and it's a fan fret system. So I have 35.5 inches on the bass side and 32 inches on the treble side. So yeah, 35.5 is pretty big, but the one string bass has 37 because it's even lower tune. 
with it being fan fretted, does that like bring in any extra new notes that you could play on your scales that you're playing or anything? Not, not new notes, but there's a, uh, there's less disparity between the strings and, you know, sometimes the tone of the big string is really different from the same note on the, you know, the strings below it, but it, it kind of manages the, 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 the string tension and the feel correctly. It's the same concept that you see on a grand piano. You know, a grand piano is going to have the tail on the lower uh, on the lower strings, and then it comes back in with the higher strings because they don't need all that resonance. It's the same kind of concept where you have more tension and more sustain on the bass strings, and then you can still have a little bit of that guitar feel on the higher strings. So it, it really makes sense. You know, when I see ding walls with four string and fan fret, I'm like, you don't really need a fan fret instrument four strings. But when you get to six, seven, nine strings, then it starts to really make sense. So awesome. Yeah. Thanks, man. No problem. And, and also the neck, the neck is really, really thin. So it's, it's easier to wrap around. What, one more question to this. What model is it? Like what, what company do you play for? I also want to know that. For the, the bass? Yeah, what I have right now is a Padalka bass from Simon Padalka, which was made in Russia. He's a Russian um, luthier, which really exploded in social media in the last couple of years. And uh, it's really, really awesome. But things in Russia are so-so, so he's actually moving in Canada to uh, work for Dingwall. I don't know if we lost his luthery forever or if, if he's going to keep building in Canada. But uh, yeah, it's a really dope instrument. That's the green uh, nine-string bass that you can see on my Instagram, the Padalka. Right, man. Thanks so much. Sick. Thank you so, so much, Logan, for getting all technical. I like it very much. Uh, Fred, I'm going to wrap this up. Um, I typically wrap up with a, a hangover cure, but that just no longer applies, so we're not going to do that. Uh, I am doing a new thing called Fight the Hops, where I ask my guests um, a small term goal, something that they're working on. It could be personal life, could be professional, it could be something you aspire to do within the next month or so. What are you doing right now to fight the hops? Hey, that's a good one. You know, we should all of that at, the figure, at our fingertips going like, yes, I really want to do this, but I'm going to have to think for a minute. Um, yeah. What do I want to do? Start drinking again, maybe? Oh, no. <laughs> Probably not. Well, I mentioned earlier I have some health. I had some health problem, and it's somewhat of a chronic condition that I'm still not exactly free from. So my really big focus in life is like focusing on health and well-being. And you know, I used to, you know, read books about horror and the uh, Amityville books and just sci-fi stuff and UFO bullshit. And uh, now I'm all about cleanse for healing and like uh, how to eat well and, you know, how to calm your mind and meditation and stuff like that. So I really went the health way, but I guess it does that naturally as you age. But my health is really my goal for the rest of 2023. Yes. I like that very much. You look good, Fred. You, you look in, like you're in a good place. Uh, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, it's an excellent fight, the hops. We should all be a little bit healthier. I love uh, yeah, how you've been so much. a pick throughout this whole thing. Uh, is there going to be a live Von Dogma Eye show? Is that something you ever foresee doing? Have you done that? I'm, I, I assume you have, but... Is it something coming up? Did I miss that? What, what's going on with Von Dagwai? Yeah, this has been a, a studio project forever. Um, I want to start playing shows in 2023 for it, and I'm looking. I'm actually looking into some bookings. 
but uh, you know that's the next step, basically taking it to the stage. Technically, it's going to be a nightmare. I kind of <laughs> painted myself in a corner with the nine string and the pedal board and the vocoder, and the, but uh, you know uh, it needs to happen, and at least it's going to do something you know different and interesting. Life, but uh, yeah, I I want to do it, but it's not scheduled yet. Basically, amazing. Uh, I am looking forward to that. I will be there. If it's in Montreal, a Montreal date, yeah, sure. I'll definitely be there. Um, yeah. Big fan of what you're doing, Fred. Just keep it going. Everyone, go check out Von Dogma Eye. The Cult of Glitch came out May 5th. Uh, you will not regret it. It's a unique listening experience. Thirsty Thursday, gang, unmute yourselves. Give Fred the warm welcome. A send-off the way that he deserves it. Massive cheers to you all for being here. <laughs> cheers I love to how all it never you guys. works. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so, so much for listening to me. You know that I love and appreciate that. Man, do I love Thirsty Thursday Hangs. Just the best. The first Thursday of each month, I hang out with a bunch of killer humans from around the globe, the Thirsty Thursday gang. I've been hanging out with these people for over three years now. They're wonderful humans, and I love conducting live interviews with them. They're with me, hanging out in the Zoom meeting with my artists. So damn stoked that I hung out with Fred finally. After so many years of wanting to have him on the podcast, I'm glad that it lined up and that it happened now finally after four years of doing this uh, massive cheers to Fred check out Von Dogma Eye's new record you will most definitely enjoy it it is experimental it is interesting it is very very cool and I think that you will like it so give it a listen massive cheers to Fred for hanging out with me I can't wait to hang out with you again bud now if you enjoyed this Vox and Hops episode you should sign up to the Vox and Hops Metal Podcasts mailing list you can do that on my website voxandhops.com that's V-O-X-A-N-D-H-O-P-S.com and when you do that, you shall receive one email a week that will contain all of the details of everything that has happened recently in the world of the Vox and Hospital podcast. You'll get to see which episodes I dropped recently. You'll get to see which episodes I have coming up. You will get to hear about any projects that I have in the works before I announce them to the public. And you will get to see which albums the Vox and Hops album review crew have reviewed recently. And you'll get to see which albums Jerry Monk, Vox and Hops' metal architect, has added to the Brutal Awakenings playlist. Trust me, if you're looking for something new to listen to the brutal awakenings playlist has all of the new best music the playlist is available on apple music and spotify so do me a favor sign up to the mailing list because there's always a lot of stuff going on in the world of the vox and hospital podcast and i hate when you miss a single thing the vox and hospital podcast is brought to you by sound talent media and evergreen podcasts i hope you have a killer killer weekend i will be back next week with yet again two episodes one on tuesday and another on friday but until then remember to enjoy life metal and craft beer cheers vox and hops heads welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute what's the name of that podcast that's axe to grind uh and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all (laughs) and my name's bob and my name's patrick and usually we're joined by tom tom's the best tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work but we talk about decidedly not so grown-up things like hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like so that could be the latest shows uh revisiting classic material talking about the new classics um all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that that you either love want to love or hate 
Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh, has impacted your life, uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind podcast. <laughs>